Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. Welcome to episode 12, maximizing competition using scorekeeping to create a competitive culture in players. What a topic we have today. It's a really fun topic on a few different fronts. Um, it's something that I think Philippe, Andy, and I are all quite passionate about. But also, it's a, it's a fun topic because it's actually a topic that I'm going to be presenting on at the United Soccer Coaches Convention in Kansas City in our hometown in January. So this is a bit of a test run to kind of flush out some ideas, get some stuff out in the ether, see how it sits um, so we can prepare and give the best possible presentation in January that we can. Um, with that said, it's been a really long time since we uh, since we recorded. I think the last recording was a week or two before Philippe was supposed to get married. I know you guys are probably on pins and needles. Did Philippe actually get married? Did it happen? And so, Philippe, did you? Are you now married? I got it here. Oh, that's a wedding ring for those of you guys that aren't watching this on YouTube. <laughs> that is that is a wedding ring. Yeah. Yeah, I made it surprisingly, but I made it and happily married right now. Well, happily married. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Andy, Andy, what do you know about being happily married? Really? <laughs> <laughs> so do I lie to our audience or do I tell the truth? <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm happily married. So, I, you know, I, I know, I know a lot about both unhappily being married and, <laughs> and now happily being married. <laughs> But but before we go any further, you know, Philippe is newly married and and before he was married, he used to come into work with loads of energy. Now he's dragging himself into the Legends Club office every morning with bags under his eyes, you know, and, and he was pretty fit when he played for the Comets. Uh, the new season is around the corner. I wonder how he's going to handle two workouts a day, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying my best and I'm trying to wake up before my commerce practice to work out in the gym uh, as well. But, you know, that uh, maybe oh, so why. this is going to be three workouts. Today. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I can keep up with all of them. <laughs> and, and, you know, and then I can't imagine how exhausted he's going to be when he eventually starts having kids. That's a whole new level of exhaustion. That's a whole nother level. <laughs> but yeah, usually give, one workout gets cut at that point. Give so. me... <laughs> <laughs> Give me a couple <laughs> years to to start uh, getting closer to that process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, to be fair, Andy and I were both at the wedding. Philippe also was there. If you were curious, if he showed up, he did, and it was a fantastic time. I mean, we're talking a couple months back at this point, but oh, it was so much fun. Um, and it was fun to see a, uh, a wedding done on two different continents at the same time, right? Because your parents were back home in Brazil. Correct. They were uh, following everything on Zoom because, unfortunately, the borders. We're still not open, and they couldn't make it. But uh, they spent the whole night, and they were at home drinking and partying. So I mean, <laughs> they they have fun in their own way. So 
Yeah, it was good. It was good. Well, um, as I mentioned, we are going to discuss maximizing competition, right? The ways in which you can use scorekeeping to create a competitive culture within your players. Um, And I'll start off with a quote. The pin is the magic wand. You will find that by breaking your practice into intense competition segments of just one to six minutes in duration, and then getting a score from each and every player at the culmination of each round, the simple act of asking for their score and writing it down will motivate your player to work harder and learn, learn more than ever before. Andy, does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you, you, if you get a pen out, get a paper out and keep score, and, and I'm going to go one step further, you total it all up at the end and then you dish out standings, it is literally magical what will happen to the motivation of your players. And, you know, there's, there's always going to be a couple of kids that are going to struggle with that on the front end. You know, but you know the the more competitive ones are going to get really fired up, and eventually it works for everybody because the more competitive, the leaders of the of the group will drag everybody with them, and and people just have to get busy and get competitive to you know to stay in the game. You know, there's no alternative. Yeah, hundred you know, percent. There's nowhere to hide. And I specifically asked if that sounds familiar because I was quoting you in your book, Training Soccer Legends. I can't remember a page, page 268. So for those of you guys listening at home, if you don't have a copy of Andy's book and would like one, email us, andy at caseylegendsoccer.com, and we can get one sent to you. But there's an entire chapter that talks about this competitive culture and the, and the scorekeeping and, and the stats that were kept from it. For those of you guys that are listening that don't know, I grew up playing for Andy. He was my only soccer coach, um, unfortunately, uh, for, a, for most of that my works both ways, career. Andy. <laughs> I think I, I started playing when I, for him when I was six or seven, played all the way through high school. I think my last year, right before we went off to college, we moved over to a different coach. Um, so my entire youth career was played through Andy, and, and, and our, our sessions were simple. We've talked about them before in this podcast. We've presented them on them before at previous United Soccer Coaches conventions. But all of, our, um, uh, all of these sessions were broken down into you know, a skill learning phase. Um, and then, and then uh, a, a pressure uh, with the skill learning phase into a 1v1 or a 2v2, and then finishing with a bit of 4v4. And th- those are typically, generally speaking, how the sessions worked out. And during the 1v1 and the 2v2, and now also when we do some 4v4 or 4v4 plus 4, um, when we do those activities, scorekeeping is a, is a constant piece of it. And that competitive culture that existed within my teams was intense. It was The competitive culture within my Legends teams growing up was significantly more intense, even at 11, 12, 13, than they ever were from the high school team or they ever were for me in college. And, and I think it had a lot to do with the scorekeeping that was kept within our session. To explain it specifically and how it worked before we dig deeper, um, the, the, uh, Andy had pre-made matrix um, that he would drop every player into, and every player became a one, a two, a three, a four, a five, however many players that were in the specific session. And then he, the matrix would tell us every round, one plays two, three plays four, five plays six, seven plays eight, round two, three plays one, four plays two. And we had specific um, uh, activities that we do, whether it was 1v1 or 2v2, and a scorekeeping approach that was taken. And then at the, ev- at the end of every round, whether it was two minutes or three minutes or four minutes, or even when we were 15, 16, you know, five and six minute rounds of 1v1, dog eat dog, absolutely crawling ourselves back to the to our water bottles to give our scores in. Andy would say, Andrew, what was your score? You know, 3-0, or more often for me, 0-3. 
Um, and Andy would zero ten. <laughs> zero ten. <laughs> and Andy would total those scores up throughout the the process of of, of doing this. And, and something that was kind of funny to me as I was preparing for this episode, Andy, in the back of your book, Training Soccer Legends, you actually have examples of some of the score sheets. And there was a, a score sheet. I think it was May fifth. 1998 um, was the score sheet. And it wasn't me, um, which was probably good because it didn't have my name in it, but it was your 81-82 team. And I coach with um, uh, Chuck Falkenberg's wife, Kristen, her and I co-coach a team together. And I coach uh, Ryan Barber's uh, son. And I, I, I see oftentimes because he coaches in the club, Drew Perkins. And all of these games names are listed here. And it's kind of fun to go back and know on May 5th, 1998, when looking at the total, I know that Ryan Barber finished plus 16 and finished first in the uh, in 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 the 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 round robin of 1v1s and it's fun to go back and see that so so Ryan Barber plus 16 and finished first Ryan Barber when he was 18 was the captain of the Canadian U21 or U23 team as a young captain you know and yet against the rest of his teammates he was only plus 16 yeah in probably 12 13 rounds of one on one would be my guess finishing in, finishing in second was chuck chuck falkenberg oh, chuck you know yep. he never knew anything less than 100% effort great skill great finisher you know and uh, he played at the university of tulsa d1 yep. you know and uh, you know so it doesn't surprise me but there's a whole bunch of on any given day it could have been, you know, Drew Perkins. It could have been Jeff Miles. It could have been Joe Burns. Well, Cody Andrews only finished plus five, and he ended up with a stint in Syria. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, it was it was it was fun to go back and look at. I took a screenshot of of the thing to send to those guys and ask them if they remembered the session. <laughs> <laughs> right. But but let's talk about that, Andy. Right. Right. What was the genesis for you for? keeping score in training like I, I know you've coached for a really long time going back to I think the 70s when you started coaching when you were running these sessions for us late 80s early 90s you were keeping score there had to be a time before you kept score where you coached and didn't keep score in your training sessions what what started you on the path of keeping score in training sessions well um the the man I credit with changing so much of my soccer life uh, is Anson Dorrance the head coach at the University of North Carolina and, you know, Anson, you know, when I worked with him, uh, you know, on the uh, under-19 national program when I was regional director of coaching for the Midwest, uh, you know, he just introduced me to a new way of looking at the game, you know, and he helped me understand, you know, some things that I needed to do, you know, when I got around to, and he probably doesn't even remember helping me, you know, but, you know, when I got around to starting the Legends Club, you know, I was, um, you know, already inculcated with his methodology of, of the competitive cauldron and keeping track of the stats. And, uh, you know, it's, it's actually an interesting story because um, Anson, you know, I stole it from Anson. Anson, in his own words, stole it from Dean Smith, you know, the basketball coach, you know, and, uh, you, know, which, you know, it's an intriguing story because uh, while they were coaching together at the North Carolina, uh, Anson had won a bunch of NCAA Division I championships before Dean Smith uh, retired. And Dean Smith was being interviewed uh, by a newspaper guy and you know the guy you know said in deference to Dean Smith and rightly so uh, it's really good Dean to be you know here and talking to the most f you know successful college soccer coach sorry college basketball coach in the history of, of the country you know and Dean Smith said hold on a second walked him down to Anson's office 
and said, let me introduce you to the most successful college coach in history, which was Anson Dorrance. You know, statistically at the time, yeah. he had won more than Dean Smith. But, you know, Anson stole his competitive cauldron after watching Dean Smith set up and execute, you know, while he was winning NCAA Division I basketball championships, a competitive cauldron in basketball. And interestingly enough, Anson also talks about later when he was doing some, uh, some, some traveling around. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, the, the gentleman concerned was there on purpose to listen to Anson holding a lecture. And I think it was when he was the coach at USC. But uh, um, Pete Carroll came up to, to Anson, you know, and said, uh, I base my football practices around your book, Training Soccer Champions, and the whole competitive cauldron. And he said, it's done absolute wonders for my college team, you know, who won a national championship when Carroll was there. Later rescinded by the NCAA, but, you know, the... Uh, you know, the NCAA's position in that has been highly questioned by very, very intelligent people. Um, but uh, Pete Carroll, of course, then went on and, and won a Super Bowl with the Seattle Seahawks. So this is something that has been proven to work at the very highest level of, you know, not just college basketball, but American football. When you mentioned before this this recording of the podcast that that Anson's competitive culture, like I've heard you talk about that often, so I, I I think either you shared it with me, or I went and found on YouTube there was a clip, a six minute clip of Anson talking about it at at, at length, and he talks a lot about that 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 practice session that he went and watched Dean Smith, all right, the many practice sessions that he watched Dean Smith, and he goes, I just looked around and there was all these assistants with note notepads out, and clipboards, and they were taking stats on, oh, he bo- boxed out there, that's a plus one or whatever their the numeration for their point system was, but a box out counted for a point not boxing out counted for negative points and they literally tracked in, from a scoring perspective all the specific actions they wanted the kids to do and and then Anson talks about how he soccerized it he kept using the term soccerized but then we you know we soccerized it a little bit and made it you know part of UNC program that we had with with the women um, and it really worked and 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 knowing how our legends approach to to tracking stats in 1v1 and 2v2 and now 4v4 plus 4. And we'll probably talk about all three throughout this episode. Um, like like you, Andy, started to specifically, like, okay, at this juncture of, of, of development for the kids, I want to make sure that they're doing X. And so I'm going to start making that a condition within the activity. And so I specifically remember there being a time when we, I don't know, we were probably 12 or 13, and you felt like we were ball watching too much defensively, which is a, a common trait, uh, not just defensively, ball watching offensively for Legends players because their teammate, my son, my eight-year-old mentioned this last week, like, oh, I just stood there because I thought he was going to do a bunch of skills and so I didn't want to run. <laughs> I was excited to watch my teammate rip off a Maradona, right? Legends players have a tendency to do that. So later in, in our development pathway, I think we as coaches have to correct that. And I remember there being a time where you're like, guys, you were just standing on defense. Like one person's defending, everybody else is watching, there's not enough movement and your matchups are getting goal side of you and it's punishing us on the field. And so the next week in 2v2s, you instituted any time your opponent in 2v2 got goal side of you, you lost possession, or it was an automatic goal, I think it was, right? So it directly started to impact the scores that we were turning into you um, and how we would finish up in the stat sheet. It didn't take long for us to realize, like, oh, shoot, we better, we better track our, our, our attacking player that we're opposite from. Um, and did, was that a, 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 a slow, you know, 
morph for you to to move toward like okay these are the things that I want to track and this is why and how I want to track them well let's let's go back first to to answer you know hold that thought on you know the the, the tracking uh, and, and those are conditions of you know the competitive culture and imposing the right conditions to get the right yeah. responses is what that is but let's go back to Anson because uh, you were talking about um, Dean Smith's having an army of yeah. you know, helpers yep. recording stats. That's what Anson did, you know, and they, he gave out graduate assistantships to helpers so that he could track all the stats he needed to track, you know. And so, you know, he had a bunch of people helping him track those stats, you know, because it takes a lot of people to record, especially when there's subjective things yeah. that are involved. Of course. Box you know, out or not boxing out. Yeah, it yeah, takes yeah. a lot of people to to uh, record that information, you know. And so it's very important to understand that that a lot of people, um, you know, are needed to do this the type of statistical assessment that Anson Dorrance and Dean Smith were doing. That takes a small army. What we've done is we've refined this down to, um, you know, just the coach doing it. You know, everything has to be done in minimal amount of time so it doesn't interfere with the flow of the practice. And still allows the coach time to make corrections and to provide motivation and inspiration and coaching, coaching points. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's a crucial difference because it sounds really complicated when you talk about an army of assistants. But we've developed this system that's not that complicated. Incidentally, my daughter just texted me, you know, to say her college team is now ranked third in the nation, Division Two, you know, so Emporia State University has gone up one ranking from last week, you know, to Division Three in the nation. That's so, pretty impressive if they're so carrying that, you know, a Barney's on the came roster. Through. And, and, you know, and that kind of segues nicely into my next comment. What did you say? <laughs> I can't remember. I missed, I've the, I missed the abuse in that. Yeah. <laughs> that had to be the way you were smirking. <laughs> but, yeah, but um, so... Uh, I took my daughter for the experience to Anson's ID camp a couple of years ago. And, you know, it, it was a great experience because, uh, you know, he's just, you know, you know, a genius. And so, you know, everything was small-sided games, under pressure, in front of goal, so much reinforcement for what we do. And she got a ton out of it, a ton of reinforcement that she'd been coached the right way, if nothing else. Um, but um, he, Anson invited me to the pre-game, you know, uh, meeting, warm-up, in the, in the changing room, you know, they have the, you know, after the kids have got into their, after the college players have gotten into their kit, and of course, college players for Anshin are internationals, you know, they're already playing, some of them for the full national team abroad in other places, and so, you know, we're sitting there with youth internationals, you know, with this, you know, just, you know, even at their young age, storied players that, you know, are incredibly respected both domestically and internationally. And, you know, the, one of the big segments was discussing who was going to be playing, who was going to be starting, who was going to be coming in on the platoon subs he puts in at certain phases in the game. And he's got a system that he almost sticks to rigidly, you know. And, and, uh, and it was really interesting because all of the starters and the people that came in on the platoon subs in each half were the ones that had won the competitive cauldron. Because you the, saw the stats posted out, or they posted he made a, He made a point of it. Yeah, yeah. And he made a point, and he may have been making the point because I was there and my daughter was there. You know, he made a point of saying, you know, this is how you finished up this week, and so this is how we're going to be starting, 
in the game, you know, we're going to reflect in our lineups, you know, the statistical success. Very transparent. Yeah, or failure. And there wasn't one, I looked around, there wasn't one disappointed face. There wasn't anybody, you could see just by their reactions, who didn't think this was fair, because it was all incredibly objective. Yeah. You know, and and, uh, that was kind of an eye-opener to me, because I knew he did this, but I'd never seen the impact it had on the players. You know, and, you know, there really is nothing to argue against. Now, in the Legends Club, we've got a huge equal playing time philosophy because we believe it's all about development. You can't develop sitting on the sideline. So we really dislike, you know, frankly, other programs and coaches who shaft kids by sitting them on the bench. Sure. Because you don't get better sat on the bench, you know. So, you know, and, and then people say, well, what about these really great players that should have more playing time? Let's put the team into more things. Yeah, yeah. Let's enter more tournaments, more leagues. Have them play on two teams. Yeah, have them play yeah. on two teams, yeah. run a squad system, it's do things of, to yeah. get them the playing time. Yeah. But don't shaft the poor kid that's working their butt off. Yeah. All you do is destroy motivation, you know, and you know, at the end of the year, they're looking for another team anyway. And, anyway. You, and you communicate to the kid that the team is more important than the individual. And you communicate to the team that you're more important than the individual and your yeah. ego and your winning and, you know, yeah. and all of the things that you know, they do in the pro game that doesn't apply to youth development becomes communicated to the kids. And it's incredibly demotivational if you're in that bottom group that doesn't get much playing time. You know, so so uh, any, anyway, watching Anson at work, you know, uh, to and he was very matter of fact. There wasn't any rah rah rah, but right before the game, the coaches left the room, and he left Holly and I in the room on purpose. And the team got together, and you know, they had some really funky on the edge rap going on. They got together, and they went absolutely crazy for about five minutes before going out to play the game. So they hit those fields and, and they were buzzing when they hit the game. You know, they were playing University of, of, of South Florida or Central Florida, you know, and, you know, in a preseason matchup. And, and, uh, but when they left the changing room, everybody was pumped. Lord, I wanted to go out and play. You know, I was pumped. This is, I'm in my 60s, you know, I was ready to lace them up and go out there and... There you know, goes and, the other Achilles. Yeah, <laughs> try and chop somebody off at the knees like I used to, you know. Uh, you know, and end up hurting myself and on a hospital bed getting getting operated on, you know. And Which would have been an opportunity to play chess, perhaps with the University of North Carolina's yeah, chess yeah. captain. That would have been great. <laughs> you remember that story. <laughs> How can we forget? <laughs> well, well, let's bring in Philippe to this discussion for a moment. So, Philippe, or just in general, like we oftentimes talk about about you know Ashington, England. We've done a, a whole episode on. It. We did a whole episode on Brazilian soccer culture and soccer played in the favelas and and all of these urban jungles in, in France where all these French players grew up playing. And we've we've talked about this at great length, right? And we talk oftentimes about the street style environment in terms of the willingness to be creative and to take take risks. And we're not, we've shared quotes from Ronaldinho talking about how it was easy to score goals in the streets, so he just wanted to nutmeg people and make them look funny on the dribble, right? We talk about that often, but. I didn't play a lot of street soccer growing up. I'm guessing most of the people listening to this podcast also didn't play a lot of street soccer growing up. But I, I think it's, we're kind of lucky then that we've got Philippe and Andy who probably did play a lot of informal street soccer growing up. Was was it a a, um, a platform? Was it a garden to develop and to grow and to nurture uh, a competitive environment? Can, can you talk about that from a competitive environment perspective a little bit well 100 percent because you go on a soccer court uh to play and there are probably four v four or five v five you know on each team so and 35 40 kids to play 
So one team gets put together and they play. If they lose, they're out and there are four or five other teams to play before they're all on the field again. So basically king of the court. So you don't want to lose because if you lose, you're going to have to wait for 20, 25 minutes, whatever. I mean, you don't want to wait two minutes, right? You want to be playing. So every time you're playing, the more people that were there, the more you would work and the more you, you know, you'd make everything possible so you could keep playing, so you could keep having fun. Nobody wanted to be outside watching the other kids play. So that itself organi organically creates like such a high level of competitiveness and, you know, on the streets, fights and, you know, arguments all the time. But which is, it's important to have that competitive nature. Um, and yeah, the street soccer brings that. And it's funny, like even the, the mag aspect, like Ronaldinho used to say, you're competing with your friends, like who is going to mag more, you know, like you're competing for all that kind of stuff. It's that's when the fun comes in as well in those environments. So it's just like everything is around that competitiveness, you know, and it's just it's just great. It's a great environment to develop. And that's why most of the great players come from that kind of environment. Yeah, I mean, piggybacking exactly what you just said about playing time, right? Like recognizing us as coaches, those that are listening are coaches or parents, right? We don't want to take away playing time from kids because that's a demotivator and works counter to, to growth. So how do we create a competitive culture within our sessions that has the same level of intensity, the same level of I've got to win, I've got to be successful, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to make things happen, I've got to go for it, I've got to play 110% that, that they have in those urban areas or in Brazil and the favelas in, 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 in Rio where Philippe grew up, how do we create that? And I think that the 1v1 and the 2v2 and the matrix that we have and the scorekeeping and, and keeping that um, is, is, uh, is perhaps the most efficient way to, to artificially create that competitive And the other thing well. is... Do you know what Philippe used to do, though? You know, he was the guy, you know, the rich kid. So, you know, he used to get, you know, a bunch of dollars and he <laughs> would buy his way onto the best team so that he could stay on and play, you know, and, you know, so he... That was that was his way of you know making this happen. No, but that that kind I was like actually Newcastle United right now. <laughs> I, was, I was actually gonna talk about <laughs> like something not involving money, but uh, the good players, you know, as soon as they walked in, like the kids sometimes would be the first team uh, next to get in, and they would keep a spot on the team waiting for a good player to come. So if you were so like you a player a that then. was performing. <laughs> Uh, I did all the time. <laughs> I could be, I could be late, you know, still wearing my flip flops, not having my shoes on, and you know they would wait They'd for play me. Play down a man, exactly. <laughs> they would make, they would make, make, make a spot for me. But like seriously, like there were like these kind of you know perks if you were the good player. But in order to be that, you'd have to perform. You had to be looked up by the other players as the player that could be the difference maker. So like everybody would, you know give everything they had in order to try to play as much as possible, you know, because there was a time that we had needed to go home and, you know, or we had to go to class or whatever, and we wanted to, to have as much fun as possible before that time. Yeah, I mean, quoting Michael Jordan, I play to win, whether during practice or a real game, and I will not let anything get in the way of me and my enthusiasm to win. And, and like, it's those kids with that just 
competitive fire and then put in an environment that feeds that competitive fire, right? That can feeds that competitive culture and put in an environment where you know, there's an intelligent coach that doesn't just let the big, strong, fast kid kick it and run, but puts in a condition that requires them to do something special, just do a, a fake or a skill before that they can, they can score, but it still feeds that competitive fire. Those are the players that, that, that go the farthest in the game. Yeah. And like, if you think about it, if the kid doesn't practice a hundred percent, they won't be able to play 100% in games. I always tell my kids that if you're not used to work as hard as you possibly can, like Monday through Friday, you're not going to be able to flip a switch on Saturday. You're not going to have that inside of you. So you got to develop that. So we got to give those kids that opportunity to, you know, be able to, everybody has a competitive size. It's it's human nature. We just got to make sure we put the kids in that situation that, that, side of them will flourish and then you know they will you demand that from them as well and they'll put that as a mentality in brazil there's a say that i love that says game um, practice is game and game is war so i mean you gotta practice you gotta practice like you would play in a game and in a game i mean you gotta go as you're going to war like it's it's not the 100%, it's the 110, 120%. Right, right. So listen to this list. You know, reasons for having a competitive cauldron. It creates high intensity, right? Two, fosters accountability. Everything counts. Three, economy of training. You get higher quality because scores are being kept, so you get faster growth. Uh, four, perfect skills under more pressure than games. Uh, Games are nowhere near the pressure that my practices were. Five, demands greater focus and engagement. Six, gets players more specifically fit for the yes. clutch. Yeah, yeah. You know, seven, provides objective stats for position selection. So you know who your best defender is. You know who your best attacker is. You know who the best player both ways is. So when you're picking a forward, a midfielder, or a defender, you know, eight, teaches players how to handle game competition, mini-game competition, but they're always competing. And nine, teaches players how to win with modesty and to lose with grace. Ten, builds team chemistry and respect. You know, if you, if you go to war against each other on the game day, you know that, you know, you've come through the fires, you know, and you're together when it comes to, you know, facing somebody else. And, and last but not least, challenges low performers to step up and compete, you know. That's a heck of a list, you know. But, you know, I'm sorry, though. Let's forget all that. Let's just do rondos. <laughs> well, I mean, but you talk about position selection and, you know, where kids best fit, right? Jim, Jimmy Davey, where did he play for your, you on your 81, 82s? Oh, I could play Jimmy anywhere. But, you know, he, you know he, he, he literally went from being an overlapping left fullback to a left midfielder to a left winger, you know. And then later on, you know, I, I realized that cutting in from the right wing, he was devastating. And so I'd play him, you know, he's left-footed. I'd play him cutting him from the, the right wing. And, and he'd cut inside and score bullets from 25 yards out. And knowing Drew Perkins, remember, and he was a forward. Yeah, once again, though, Drew, you know, used to, to drop in at sweeper. And he was, uh, Drew's nickname was the Puma. He was, you know, sleek and smooth and, you know, just, you know, you know he was just unbelievably good at coming through and somehow, you know, smoothly ghosting through a defense. 
And then he had unbelievable power, and I could put him anywhere I wanted to put him. But, you know, he mostly played forward, and he went on to play pro at a forward position. Correct. Well, both of them finished 24 goals for, 23 goals against on May 5th, 1998 in 1v1s, right? And, and in that, they both finished fourth in goals for, right? They both finished 11th in goals against out of 14. And in total, they finished sixth, so just above middle of the, of the pack. In and terms. these guys were both D1, and then they were both pros demonstrating the level of the team, but also, I think, pointing out that both of them had a penchant, probably a knack, more more uh, aggressive, offensive-minded players than defensive-minded players. Right, And right. the stats told you that story. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, yeah. so you, you know, you know what their strengths and you know what their weaknesses were just by looking. So when I was picking a team, you know, I didn't pick somebody that had scored 23 goals but given up 30 to be a defender. Correct. You know, when, the, when the money was on the line, I'd look at that stat and I'd say, okay, let's you know, release you from you know, the bulk of your defensive responsibilities. And you know, let's, you know, if you finish third on the, on the offensive side and you finished 13th on the defensive side, you probably weren't going to play left fullback in the game yeah. for me. You know, you're probably going to be a forward. You know, so it's, it's a lot easier to pick your team when you're actually dealing with reality instead of subjectivity. Because yeah. we color everything we see with our own history. Malcolm Gladwell, you know, we are powerfully linked with, you know, the culture and the environment that we grew up in, where we're from, mm -hmm. you know, and it's so true, you know, we see things that aren't reality if we don't statistically record them. We see things through our paradigm, not through the paradigm of reality. And it's very dangerous, very dangerous. You know, a lot of people could completely buy into a fantasy and not reality you're not talking about like today's current environment on oh, Facebook. Uh, you, know, I, you know our current environment is the most open-minded you know the most eclectic the most understanding and i'm being totally sarcastic <laughs> <laughs> environment in world history you know, so but yeah. like so we're, we've talked a little bit right like about about the 1v1 the scorekeeping right it was, sim it was simple as goals for goals against right so there'd be a three minute round or four minute round and, and we would collect the data at the end of every round of goals for goals against and at the end of the session the end of the hour and a half session we would then rank you know one goals for two goals for three goals for and the same for goals against and the same for goal differential and that would tell the story to both the players and the parents we had a similar uh, um, approach to doing the 2v2s as well I as of late have not been coaching older kids. I've been coaching younger kids, g generally speaking. Those younger kids are now a little bit older. They're U9s, um, but I've had them for the last several years and been playing a ton of 1v1s in my training sessions, still creating that competitive cauldron. But in those younger age groups, and some of you listening might have younger age groups, or not homogenous groups where your top player and your bottom player would just absolutely kill each other in a 1v1, and so it wouldn't be healthy or motivating or a, a good environment for development. And so what I typically do in those, in those sessions is I've, with those younger kids, and especially if they're homo not homogenous, is I create an A and a B group, and I have them just do a round robin against kids that are more similar to them in, in level and ability, but I don't tell them they're in an A and a B group, and they're not in, in, intelligent enough or, uh, to, to pick up on it. But then also sometimes when they're really young and their scores aren't perfect, right, and some kid might be, get 8-0, and I don't think that's great for the six-year-old to know, you know, have to report in front of everybody they got beat AO, I might start to really focus in on specific skills. Maybe I don't think the kids are using the scissors enough, and so instead they're counting the number of scissors they do in the 1v1 round. And at the end of the round when I say, Johnny, what'd you get? 
I got four one four scissors. Awesome. Can you get five next time? Right? Or maybe they're or maybe they're just coming back and they're reporting the skill they were most proud of. So they're having to re- recollect and think back to the round. Like, what am I most proud of in that in that specific moment? Uh, I did this L turn Maradona combo that was awesome. So that's the skill that I report, and then that enables me to score keep and to create motivation from a competitive cauldron perspective and incentivize the, the, the activities that I want them to do until they get older, until it's full dog-eat-dog, dog, much like we've talked about in this moment. Andy, did, when you were doing 1v1s um, or 2v2s for that matter, did you have to play with it a little bit to find the right recipe for each specific team? Yeah, you, you obviously need to play with it and you, you know, you've got to use your ability to adjust on the fly. But this is a good point to introduce... A, a quote that's one of my favorite of all time by a, a gentleman called Grantland Rice. And his quote is, and some of you listening will have already heard this, uh, when the great scorer comes to mark against your name, he'll write, not won or lost, but how you played the game. And this isn't about winning and losing. This is about using the stats to motivate the effort so everybody in a practice walks off a winner because we've optimized the development in that practice. Sure, there's got to be somebody that finishes lower down in the stats and somebody that's going to win the stats. You know, but at the end of the day, that's not the point here. And that's never the focus on the part of the, the coach with the magic wand, with the pencil. You know, the stats are there because that gets 110% out of the players. You know, they really put the effort in. You know, but at the end of the day, that's not the focus is on winning and losing. You know, it is how you, you competed, you know, and what you did while you were competing, the, the focus. And what you're alluding to is the conditions that we impose to, you know, lessen the pain of defeat and improve the growth and the development and how the kids walk away having got something really good. And, and maximize the motivation for the kids. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So they can all walk away feeling that they really did something you know, well. And just walking away knowing you worked your butt off is huge. Mm-hmm. Even if you finish bottom of the pile, you, you know you worked really hard. You know, and I made a point of saying, look, nobody else is working as hard as us. And I don't care whether you finish first or you finish 15th. Yep, always. You and your development absolutely blew away anything any other team, you know, in Kansas City or the nation is probably doing right now. You know, so you are narrowing the gap on every other player in the city. And, you know, and it was very interesting because, as you'll remember, when you guys were seniors, we had another team that had been mirrored alongside us called the, the, the Legends Hotspurs. Mm-hmm you know, to go with your KC Legends team. And so, you know, we had about 36 players at that point in time because we had two full rosters that were all playing in high school. And I remember back in those days, I don't think they do it anymore, but they used to have a high school all-star game at Arrowhead. Mm -hmm. You know, so you were playing in, you know, a 70-plus thousand-seater stadium, you know, and, you know, and on that field of, like, the the 36 players that have been selected... I think we had 24 of our players mm-hmm. were the top 36 in Kansas City, selected by high school coaches. Yep. You know, we had no ability to influence the selection decisions. That's how dominant this competitive cauldron, you know, and you know, our approach to the game made our club because we had both of those teams from when they were five years old, yep. six years old. Yep. 
you know, and so those players just became head and shoulders above the rest. And we didn't get the best athletes. You can't look at a group of four and five and six-year-olds and select the best athletes. So we had lots of kids that were athletically average. Yep. You know, I'm not saying there's terribly weak players, but there were some kids that were athletically average. You know, so this wasn't a case of churning like most clubs do, you know, cut in at the end of the year and adding better athletes. This was a pure development program and the success we had as a result of the pure development, we're not talking about a theory here. This is something we've been doing for decades and decades and decades. And, and just so that we're really clear, I, the teams I coach, U9, U9, U10, U12, and U15, 90% of every single session I run is 1v1s or 2v2s. Let me repeat that again. 90, for the U9, U10, right? 90% of it is 1v1s, right? So this is literally all we do. This is the environment that we're, that we're creating for our kids to, to grow up and play. But, you know, you talk about, I, I have three kids of my own. My middle child, Ryan, is 11, and he came to soccer late. Not that I didn't try when he was younger. He was just adamant that he wasn't going to play, and he, I can't make him. Um, so I stopped trying to make him. Um, anyways, he came, he came to competitive or premier soccer. I think he was probably nine or so when he finally came to it. And so he was very behind the rest of the kids that I put on a team with him. Um, and it, it, we played 1v1s and we kept score. And like Ryan, probably the most competitive of all my three kids, really struggled with losing and would look for every specific shortcut he could find to make her, his scores a little, a little bit better, which those shortcuts shortchange his development, obviously. And so I had to pay attention to that. But long story short, Ryan got to a place where he recognized that if he could just get even or plus one, that was his goal. So his goal was with himself, not whether he finished last or first, but can I just be even or plus one in the goal differential column? And, and, and so that's what he focused on. And it became even for the bottom player in, in the group, there is something that is extremely motivational for them. And, it, and, and you mentioned earlier, I think when you listed off your reasons, Andy, that that raises the level for your bottom players. When you create this competitive cauldron, competitive culture that, that tracks stats, gives them something that they can work on and successful with right away yeah yeah you know and and let me add to that a little bit as well because there's another value to this in in as much as um while this is going on i i never call fouls you know we we have a situation where if a foul occurs nothing said nothing is is you know there's not a blink of an eye you know and yeah i want my players you know as long as they you know there's not a bone sticking out I want my players to carry on and not focus on the foul. So they go down, they bounce back up, they fight back. They don't for one minute, you know, cry. You know, they're not babies. You know, you know and, and as they hit the floor, the, the first word out of my mouth is... Same as mine because I'm copying you, bounce. Bounce. Yeah, bounce. Yeah, yeah. literally, you know, you, you've got to come off the floor, you know, f- you know, immediately like a tennis ball and you've got to be right back into the game. You know, and 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 uh, I play against teams all the time with coaches that whine and cry to the referee when their kids get kicked. You know, you know when there's a foul. You know, and you know, and a lot of times they're whining and crying even when there isn't a foul, and they know it. Yeah. You know, but they're working the referee. The ball goes out of play off of their player, and they're claiming the throw-in. You know, and these coaches don't understand, and the parents that support this don't understand that their coach is teaching their kid to cheat. You know, is they're teaching their kid to be a whiner, you know, to be a baby, to try and 
undercut the the process of honesty, you know, by you know, just in order to win a stupid game. How ridiculous is this? You're literally going to give away, you know, your your honesty, your character, you know, what makes you special in life, you know, and perhaps even give away the chance of marrying a wonderful woman, you know, or or owning a you know an incredible business or running an incredible soccer club, you know, with with great people. You know, and working with wonderful people on a daily basis because, yes, we do have people that are wonderful in our club. You've said Andrew and uh, Philippe, you know, but, you know, the rest of the coaches are actually But we good. married up, so it, it, <laughs> it, it evens up. But, but you, know, the, you, you know, what I'm trying to point out is that you're, you're literally undercutting what makes life so pleasant, so successful, you know, when you do encourage any type of whining to referees, crying to referees, you're killing your kid's personality. You're killing your kid's character, you know, because they're not honest. They're not ethical. You know, they're just seeing how can I get an advantage without truly deserving that advantage. And it's a terrible thing to do to somebody's character, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Uh, just so happened to be playing against a team from St. Louis uh, a few weeks ago, and the coach like literally was telling me, "Ah, I'm just selling the call, see if I can get it." And I'm like, "You, like, <laughs> come on!" And of course, the referee's a young kid, and so it worked. And so, like, I had to fight the temptation not to start working the referee to get some calls back myself. <laughs> um, so, uh, so as we as we move on, let's talk two v twos really quick because, and we'll do a whole episode on two v twos. We haven't done them yet, but but how we do our scorekeeping on two v twos is every kid is assigned. You know, it's, it's me and Philippe versus Andy and and whoever his partner is, John, and 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 uh, I'm assigned one of the players on the opposite team. So me and Philippe are playing together. I'm marking Andy, and so every time Andy scores, I go to the minus one. And every time I score, I go to plus one. And if I have an assist, then I go to plus one again. So if I've scored two and, and had one assist, I'm now plus three. But Andy scored, I'm now plus two. And at the end of the match, I get a plus one if we won or I get a minus one if we lost. And that sounds really um, uh, uh, convoluted. It's not, right? Like every, every team I've ever coached, the kids figure it out right away. Um, it's great because it, it creates some internal conflict immediately where kids are arguing about whether whether they scored or they didn't score as a, a, you know, an assist or not an assist and like that the kids working through that process is super healthy um, for them and and I try to let it play out and only provide some mentorship or some coaching on it um, where necessary but that then gives the kids a score at the end of every round that accumulates to the end of every total total uh, session and maybe they finish plus 10 or maybe they finish minus 10 and something to work toward but it encourages a fast, intense, competitive, cultured play within the session. And so so keeping scores through those 1v1s and 2v2s is paramount to what we do as an organization. And, and I would argue, with the exception of the facilities, with the exception of having our kids, making our kids train in a box, in a walled environment where the ball never escapes, and it is fast-paced and it's tight and soccer on a supposed to hit, with the exception of the actual environment that we put the kids in for training, it's the scorekeeping that has um, the biggest impact on them uh, from a, a total player perspective when they finish training as a legend, um, hopefully at 17 or 18. But, but it has to be the right thing they're competing for. Oh, 100%. And, and yeah. Pete, Pete Carroll puts it best, and let me quote him. Pete Carroll says, always compete to be a great father, to be a great human being, to be a great coach, to be a great friend. Help people find their best. End of quote. And that's what a lot of people miss, you know, and they think that winning is really important. And, you know, we do one-on-ones not because somebody wins and somebody loses. 
we do one-on-ones because it fulfills that list of great things that they learn to do. You know, and as long as we remain ethical and moral and we you know, set the right example, our kids leave us prepared to be all of those things in life. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Yeah, we do 1v1s because it makes our kids responsible for their actions. Nobody else is responsible whether they win or lose other than themselves. And that responsibility is, is, is paramount um, to, to it all. And, and, you know, another thing that, uh, that, that a lot of people don't appreciate because people come and watch they, our practices and they, they, you know, I've had this happen a few times. They walk away and they say, that was just too messy. It was, you know, as it use an English word, it was rubbish because it was too messy. And, you know, I look at these people and I say, look, don't you understand the science of complexity, the science of chaos? You know, it's, we've got a lot of players in a small space, outdoors or indoors, you know, in a small space. You know, and they're all playing at once, and you know it's like bats in a cave, and they're they're dealing with you know, I I in an earlier episode I talked about the Ghanaian national team doing this when they were dominant at the youth level, you know, in in the decade of the 90s, and you know they built this bats in a cave radar, and and what this leads to is incredible intelligence and vision under pressure, the ability to make sense of anarchy, the you know the ability to make sense of a situation where there's minimal rules. You know, and lots of things happening all at once. You know, you've got to literally become an incredible computer brain, you know, to, to handle this. And I want, I brought, there's a book here by Gary Kasparov, the, the, the chess grandmaster. And I brought it. He's a good because, Twitter follow, by the way. Yeah, he's, he's um, you know, he's, he's a brilliant man, you know, and obviously was an incredible chess player. Uh, we co- we've called this in the past chess on grass. But here's the difference between chess and soccer is, you know, while you're, you're playing a game of chess, and don't get me wrong, it's an incredibly deep and difficult game, you know, with lots of angles and lots of things to think about. Nobody's pushing you. Nobody's kicking you. You know, you're not totally on the edge of your anaerobic threshold. You know, you're not absolutely dying because you're in the 85th minute of the game and you've, you know, exhausted your, you know, your aerobic, you know, fitness capacity. You know, you're not, you know, in this, this incredibly difficult physiological scenario you know and also a more difficult psychological scenario because the opponent you know is not yelling at you <laughs> isn't trash talking you yeah you know? <coughs> excuse me and and so so you've got so much more acting upon you when you're in you know this 360 degree, degree game this most open of sports the ball can be played at all levels you've got 11 opponents 10 teammates you know all the different angles you know, you've got all this, you know, this skill opportunity. You can use your, your chest, your thighs, your feet, every area of the foot. You can use your head, you know, throw in the ball in. You can use your hands. You know, it's every player uses virtually every part of their body every game, you know. And so, you know, it's, it's the most challenging physiological, psychological environment, you know, from a decision-making perspective. And one up from chess, there's a, there's a whole new school of thought that video games are better than chess for developing the ability to think on your feet. But once again, you know, there's, the, people can be brilliant at a video game and they can be, you know, incredibly out of shape, you know, with high blood pressure and, you know, and, you know, and die from a heart attack at age 35 or whatever because, you know, they haven't honed everything about their physiology, you know. And, you know, so this is, this is kind of chess and video games, but with an absolute slew of additional advantages, the way that we train it. 
Now, unfortunately, most teams that you know they do pattern plays. You know they do you know you know five versus two. That's what Greg Berhalter told us that we should be focusing on to our faces. A group of coaches from Kansas City a couple of years ago when we were supposed to be developing great soccer players under pressure. And I, you know, as much as I respect what the man's done at times with the U.S. national team, you know, I, I cannot respect that perspective on coaching kids because it does none of what we've been talking about. You know, and I'm not the person that swims with the current. So if I think Greg Berhalter or, or God is wrong, I'm going to say I think you're wrong. You know, and, and so I think it's terribly wrong to play kids with a five versus two advantage, you know, where they're not really having to push themselves in every single aspect of their game to become more creative, harder working, better at playing quick passes, better at finishing difficult shots, better at beating a player with a merit on the turn. You know, you're going to miss something out unless you do what we do. Hopefully that makes sense. Well, it, I mean, it does, right? I, like, again, I, I haven't spent a lot of time reading about rondos because I don't use them in training. Um, but I presume the reason you do 5e versus 2, the biggest reason, is to give kids um, an opportunity to gain some confidence in terms of moving the ball around, right? Well... Um, <laughs> there's way better ways to give kids confidence, right? Rather than moving the ball around in a in a in a numbers up scenario that is way in your favor. Um, and you know, my kids spend their time in one versus one all the time, right? Or one ball with one kid, and there's a ton of confidence built from that perspective. Uh, my 11 year old son Ryan that I spoke about earlier is is a perfect example, and I yeah, I've got a clip of him doing a, a Maradona turn that I'll share. Um, and again, like he's not a high level player, he plays Division Eight out of 11 divisions in Heartland in our league here in Kansas City. But the kid's a stud, and the kid is growing in confidence and ability level and 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 gaining all of the wonderful things that you can get from from soccer as a vehicle for teaching life lessons. And so that that can't be missed. All of us, there's I, I pick Andy, me, and, and Matt Iverson, a, uh, uh, one of the directors within our club, as examples on this. But you know, Andy uses a notebook when he takes these stats, and so he pulls out a notebook and his and his, and his pencil, and he takes the stats every time. I use a whiteboard, so I use a big whiteboard. I literally, it's one of the facilities that I train at. It's on the wall, and so I just write on the whiteboard on the wall. And the facility here in on the Kansas side, where I don't have a whiteboard on a wall, I just carry one to the field, and so I I keep the stats on the whiteboard, and I really like it because it gives me a um, gives the kids a very public viewing of, of of all of that and Matt Iverson uses an iPad because he is way more technological than all of us combined um, being the artist that he is um, but there's you know numerous different ways to use and to, to, to track these scores but those are those are three different examples that are really successful and, 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 and efficient for different coaches in our club and, and, and I'm gonna uh, defer to you on this one Philippe because the note I've got here, is emphasize the magic, the beauty. You know, the competitive cauldron can't just be fighting. You know, it, it's, you know, and you're from a country that plays the beautiful game, you know, Jogo Manita, you know, and, and so that's essential that, that we include in our lives the art, whatever our art is, yeah. it might be heavy metal music for somebody. You know, people are different. We've got such an amazing, wonderful, diverse human race here. You know, and you know, for some people it's Mona Lisa, it's Rembrandt. For other people it's Picasso. You know, whatever our art is. But what I always used to get out of the Brazilian game, and I'm sorry I don't get out of the Brazilian game as much as I used to, was the beautiful game, the art. And that's with our conditions, we emphasize that 
we must be artists. Does that make sense? What's your feedback on that? No, 100%. Uh, Andrew brought an excellent quote uh, from Ronaldinho. And I go back uh, to Andy's time of watching soccer, uh, probably as a young adult watching Garincha play. And, you know, he, I remember my dad telling the story that in a practice from Botafogo, he got the ball and he beat like five or six defenders, beat the keeper, and then he stopped the ball on the line and he walked away. And he was like, just like making fun of everybody. Uh, that's too easy. That's too easy. Like, I, I don't need to score that goal. It, it's, it's good for me. So, like, that kind of, you know. I hate that guy. <laughs> you know, I've never had that type of ability. I would love to be there just once in my life and able to walk away and thumb my nose at everybody i just beaten. No. Never and, happens. And, like, and he, I mean, he was a funny guy. He used to say every defender's name was John. Because they were all the same for him. They were going to get beat. <laughs> so they, he just called all of them John, you know? And yeah. like that kind and, of... And Philippe, guess what my middle name is? <laughs> John. <laughs> Brilliant. You can't make this stuff up, can you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, and I swear I didn't know. So I probably would have kept that, that story out of, of the pod, but... Uh, but yeah, like that kind of banter. I, find I out mean, you did know you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of banter is also part of it, right? Like, if it's just too serious, oh, let's just try to win, try to win, try to win, try to win. It takes the beauty out of it. And in Brazil, like, you know, you you get the guy that will try to mag you or do a rainbow on you, you know, and will get in front of the goal instead of just quickly scoring. He will, you know, try to beat the keeper, do a fake shot, make the keeper fall. You know, the Panenka on the penalty kick. Uh, you know, you could watch uh, probably like 10 years ago when you players in Brazil all the time, they would run to the ball on the PK and they would do a, like a fake shot, stop, and then the keeper would dive and they would place it and they start started disallowing that. But like that's the kind of stuff that we try to come up with uh, back home. Like we try to be creative and bring that aspect and we're competing against each other to see Who's gonna do the funkiest, you know, the craziest skill? Because at the end of the day, like if you're playing street soccer, you're not gonna remember, oh, okay, that day I scored 17 goals in three hours. But you're gonna remember, man, I got that guy. He came flying and I magged him and he fell on his butt. And then after that, like I did a no look pass. You know, that kind of Ronaldinho stuff, it's, you know, what everybody's competing for as well. And I think that's great. That stimulates the creativity and make the game being beautiful. Then now the Brazilian national team has coaches that will tell the players not to do it. Keep the ball, keep the ball, the formation, the whatever. I don't know. I'm angry because Brazil tied the first game in the qualifying for the World Cup and it's just boring <laughs> to watch. You mentioned, though, I got to tell the story. Hopefully it comes across well in the pod. Um, this was not planned, but you mentioned, you know, you three hours of street soccer, you won't remember you scored 17 goals, but you'll remember that one time you magged a guy. And so I've got to tell a story. And so post-college, I, I was I'd still in college, but we'd finished my senior season. And I went to I went to school at Drury University in Springfield, Missouri. Um, and in Springfield, there's a federal penitentiary. And Andy, I'm not even sure if I ever told you this story, but it's a good one. So it's a federal penitentiary, most famous because I believe John Gotti died at this prison <clears throat> and the strength and uh, uh speed and agility or whatever that that guy that we had with at drury um uh 
also worked as like the head physical education instructor at the federal prison. And so he came up to me and some of the other seniors and said, hey, now that you guys are done playing, we've got this prison soccer team that's really, you know, great behavior. They've been working hard. They're getting, you know, decent. Would you put together a team and come in and play against us? And we were like, well, yeah, absolutely, 100%. And, and so I said, well, what, what are we playing? He said, well, it's wintertime, so it'll be indoor, and so it's in our gym. And they had really weird kind of street soccer rules. We played with a soccer ball. You've probably seen them before that they're, like, made of tennis ball material. Um, he said, one, line, one side, there's a line, the basketball line. That's out of bounds. The other side, the entire wall up to the ceiling is in bounds. The door cutouts behind the goals are in play, and it's kind of like a futsal goal is what we use. And I said, great, like, we're all just finishing – you know, playing division one soccer, like, do you want us to bring in some no names as well? And he was like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. So we, I think I got nine guys to come in and play. Five of us were soccer players. And then four of them were my best friends that all my roommates in college that, that didn't play soccer ever growing up. And so we go into play in, in this gym and we ended up doing it like five times th- through the rest of that school year. And it was, we get there, we're walking through the prison, as you can imagine, like the Green Mile, right? The cups on the, 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 the bars and all that, all that noise is being made. And we walk all the way through it, and we get all the way. And as we get close to what later became the gym, we can hear this, like, this low murmur roar slowly getting louder and louder and louder. And we walk into the gym, and one entire side of this gym is packed. And it's the most packed gym I've ever been in. And everybody's wearing a blue suit because they're all prisoners. Um, and as we walk in, like this deafening roar is coming on one side of us, right? It's the closer, closest I've ever felt to be in the United States men's national team at a qualifier <laughs> away in CONCACAF. And like, we're just like, I draws her at the floor smiling. Like, I cannot believe we're doing this. The guys are, the team we're playing against is knocking the ball around in the field. And, and our PE instructor guy was like, they're just goofing off. They, they're, they're better than what they're, putting on right now and they're doing it intentionally and he was right the second the kickoff they're like those guys they weren't good soccer players but they understood every nook and cranny of that court they understood how to play the ball off the wall and all this stuff so anyways, we get going and and it, 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 i got the ball right in front of this big crowd and i'm 1v1 with a guy just inside my own half on essentially a basketball court and i dribbled right at him and i rainbowed over top of him ran around him caught the ball with my right foot set it back down on the ground another guy comes up to me i hit a scissors right leading with my right foot come onto my left and just zing a shot with my left foot just off the post and wide and in that moment it hit me what I'd done and I bent over and I could feel this hand come on my back and I was like oh shit this guy is going to absolutely I mean I've just made this this you know for life prisoner look like an absolute imbecile in front of hundreds and hundreds of his fellow prisoners in the gym and I'm like he is going to like literally and we had to sign when we walked in like that if a fight happens they don't break him up we're on our own like we all that happened is we're walking in this facility anyways the guy goes man that was the fucking coolest thing I've ever seen that was so awesome but like as like that was a pretty graphic story that I just told if you were like Andrew tell me a story about soccer and of all of the games that I played right all of the championships I won that's the story I go to every single time because it's such a great memory of absolutely filleting a guy inside of a prison with a rainbow. Yeah, I, I got one. I, I was playing against Chris Duke in, a, in the final of a, uh, a championship game indoors in Kansas City when I was still young enough to play. And, uh, and you know, Chris is now, you know, a, a director on the national level with youth soccer and played a long pro career. And uh, I, I nutmegged him coming out of the back. And uh, there was a photographer there because this was a national tournament. And... And uh, he actually took a photograph of that moment 
and Chris worked for me at the time and uh, and you know because we were running the national indoor championship and I called a meeting after after my wife bought me that photograph and I called a meeting <laughs> I called a meeting after she presented it with me and I had it on an easel you know it was a big photograph and I had it on an easel and I brought all the staff in of the national indoor championship I said we need to have a meeting there's some there's some crucial stuff happening that uh, that I think you're going to appreciate and I wanted to you know you know have you see this you know and then I, I took the towel off the photograph, <laughs> Chris's jaw, about hit the floor because you know I mean you know not only did he get embarrassed, I had visual proof of the fact that and Chris was a way better player than I was, you know. But I had visual proof of my one moment of glory, you know. And and you know same same theme, you know. But um, if anybody follows follows us on on Facebook or follows our club site you will see hundreds and hundreds of videos of our players doing this type of thing Every to weekend. defenders. You know, Andrew gives you his one moment and, you know, and he's probably got a hundred moments and I give you my one moment and I've actually got, you know, typically minus one moment, you know, but, you know, in this case, I've actually got a moment where I embarrassed an opponent with a dribbling move and you know, just a nutmeg, you know, and I probably didn't even mean it, to be honest. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, it's our players have a thousand of these moments. Can you think of what that does? For self-concept, you know, because it's hard to be humble when you're brilliant, you know, and we teach humility. We, we, we want our players to win with modesty, you know, and lose with grace, you know, but when you're brilliant, you have a confidence, even if you do that, which we, you know, our players do, you have a confidence, you walk tall, you've got an inner light that, that shines because you have this ability. And, and I'm going to segue a little bit here because uh, my eldest daughter is married to um, a man called Brian Beard. And Brian, for the longest time, has run Noble Cause Productions. And that's the biggest jousting troupe in the world. And they go to these Renaissance festivals and they do, um, they, they do these jousts. And everything that we read about in terms of, you know, the comprising a, a joust, you know, it's sword fights, you know, it's, it's, you know, horses, you know, with knights on them, you know, and, uh, you know, with lances. And there's some pretty serious collisions that go on in these bouts. And very entertaining, but noble cause is that way for a reason. And it was this way before, you know, we ever met. So we're kind of kindred spirits in this respect. Because, you know, under his banner of noble cause, the, the um, cheat to win culture, the might is right culture has absolutely no purchase. Because it's always the good knights that win. Because he takes his responsibility to show the kids of this world that if you cheat to win, you're a loser. So the, the bad guys never win in his joust. Never, ever do the bad guys dressed in black. You know, you know they, have, they, they divvy up the crowd, so half the crowd is cheering for them, and half the crowd is cheering for the bad guys, you know, for the good guys. And then, you know, but the end of the joust, the bad guys never win because, you know, as he puts it, we want to send every child home knowing that the only way to be in life, if you want to be successful, is honest, you know, is competitive, you know, is, is, is good, you know, is kind, you know, is, it's, it's loving, you know, and, you know, that's his principle, and that's very much the principle behind our club. It sounds corny, you know, but everybody on our teams, your team, you know, the teams that you coach, these kids love each other. 
you know, and they're all very similar in that they'll take big risks, they'll use great skills. It sets them apart, you know, but it's, it's a band of brilliance. You know, that's what these kids are, brilliant players. You know, and so, you know, it's not a gang. It's not, you know, it's, it's not like, um, you know, inner cities, you know, where kids get into drugs and violence. This is a, a band of people that have a great friendship and a great level of personal honesty, you know, that they bring to life because of the way in which we expect them to be in the game. If, if there's a bad referee call and we get a penalty kick, we roll it to the keeper, we roll it wide of goal. Because we teach our kids, do not ever take advantage of something you know to be wrong because it serves your selfish you know, interests, your, your darker side interests. You want to win, for example. So we must constantly create environments where you have to not cheat to win. You have to be honest about losing. You know, and, you know, if you found somebody, you know, y you put your hand up and say, you know, my bad. You know, but we encourage them to carry on going, you know. But our kids, when they leave us, are the ones that you sometimes see this in the pro game these days. days when a penalty is given, you occasionally see a pro that goes to the referee and say, I didn't trip him. And the referees turn it around, you know, and, and give it the other way after that, that is made known to them. You know, and VAR is, I think, is great because it catches all of these things these days, you know, or the majority of these things, and the game is much fairer than it used to be. There used to be a lot more cheating in the game, you know, and, and we've got to, you know, teach kids to do the right thing, you know, in life, through the game, under immense pressure. And if they can do the right thing when their tongue is dragging, you know, when they're exhausted, and when they really want to win, you know, then the rest of life's actually going to be pretty easy. By yep. comparison, uh, I wanted to mention, guys, for those of you listening, the um, uh, Philippe and I in July got the chance to go down to Dallas, Texas. There's a, uh, a partner of ours, a partner club, Legends Club, um, a Happy Feet program. You may or may not know what Happy Feet is um, that has just opened up um, the Soccer Box, um, which is a, a, a concept that we started here in Kansas City based on um, uh, building small fields, building box soccer courts, building, um, creating a culture that really thrives and builds off of this competitive culture and creative culture and using um, the the favelas of Brazil or the urban jungles of, of Marseille, France as, as inspiration. And we went down and um, spent some time with Neil and Andrew, the owners and some of their coaches and, and created a really, a really good video, a long video, a long form video. I'm going to share it on our YouTube page and I'll make sure that gets shared out through our social media accounts. But I want to, I want to share with you why we, why, why we started to build that in Kansas city and partner with people and if you're in a city that you'd think maybe partnering with us to, to build out this facility, I, I can tell you that it'd be me you'd be talking to, and it's a lot easier than, than maybe it seems to build out a small training facility indoor that creates this environment. But let me share with you, I grew up playing for Andy. We only played, trained indoor on boarded fields, um, you know, four or five months of the year during the winter. The rest of the year we trained outside. And so when we would do these 1v1s and 2v2s, and I said when we would do at every practice when we did 1v1s and 2v2s, it was a full-size outdoor goal with maybe 25 yards, uh, you know, 20 paces, 25 paces in between the other full-size outdoor goal. 
specifically we, we practiced off 103rd street um and behind an old sprint campus um and one goal was maybe 20 yards in front of some wooded trees that went down a hill and the other goal was in front of 60 yards before you got to the end of the field and we moved the goals to close and over time we that 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 field got worn down to where there was no grass it just literally like a dirt infield for a baseball field and so we would start 1v1s every day you know summer um in the heat whatever we'd start our 1v1 session andy'd put us out in, in to our um, uh, matrix, and I'd start my four-minute round against you know Aaron Cuttis, and within 30 seconds of the round taking off, there would be a dust cloud literally sitting over the field from all of the dirt that we'd kicked up because it wasn't just my team training; it was another team doing one v one simultaneously on the same field, and I'd be sprinting along, and Drew Perkins, who we talked about before, would hit a shot, and I wouldn't see it coming; it would knock me off of my feet, and I'd have a, a mouthful of dirt. I paid um, him to do that. Yeah, <laughs> mouthful of dirt. I'd have to spit out and get back up and chase Aaron before he puts it in the, in the corner because again I'm going to report my score after this it was very very intense and, and, and an, an incredible environment for teaching this competitive culture this competitive drive and this training but we no longer train in that environment anymore because we found a better approach and we found that putting kids in a small field be it 36 feet wide and 72 feet long if they're a bit older or 28 feet wide and 56 feet long if they're a little bit younger or even 18 by 36 or if they're even younger than that where there's walls and nets all around so the ball never escapes our kids get literally hundreds and thousands of touches more in short short periods of time that give them much more um, uh, much more repetitions that, that compound the skill acquisition um, impact. The, the smaller space makes it to where um, you're always in the middle of a crucial decision uh, and you always have to make a crucial decision defensively or offensively. Um, you know, I remember as a kid, you know, playing against, uh, and Ryan, if he listens to this, probably won't mind. I know Ryan would do a Matthews sometimes and intentionally miss the goal. So it'd go 30 yards past the goal because he knew I was going to chase it as fast as I could, but that still was going to take me 45 seconds to go get that ball and come back which allowed him a chance to rest and there's none of that in these indoor training facilities and so uh, I will say that when given the opportunity to move from a, a poor environment for repetition into a, 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 a into a tennis court with with chain link fence all around you for 1v1s or into an indoor TSB facility that that we've helped you build when you get that opportunity to do that you really can can increase the level of repetitions that your players are going to get and, and, and improve this competitive culture that you're trying to build within your teams. Um, Andy, Philippe, would you have anything to add to that, that perspective at all? No, just like those fields are inspired, as you said, in, in what we play back in Brazil and in France and Argentina and, you know, the soccer hotbeds, obviously excluded England because they are not one. Um, but yeah, it's tight spaces and where are you going to be working from now on? <laughs> <laughs> and if it's good enough for Philippe and Brazilians, it's good enough for us. Uh, but yeah, I mean, th those are the environments that the great players grow up in. You know, nobody wants to waste time chasing balls. And, you know, if the ball doesn't go out, you're not wasting that time. That time is being used to development. So uh, it's very, very, very pur pur purposeful. And it's it's great for the kids. And and if you don't believe us, look at the soccer societies over the last couple of decades of Iceland, France, Croatia, Belgium. And when England won the World Cup, their two strikers were were um, Jaden Sancho and Rian Brewster, 
and they came out of the the small boarded uh, fields of Islington, London. You know, and this the, you know, I could go on and on and on, but this is you know Brazil, the favelas, surrounded by brick walls. You know, even if it happened accidentally, like in Ashington, England, the you know, uh, if you listen to an earlier podcast, we went into, the, you know, massive depth into Ashton, England and how, you know, the environment was so suited to this. The, the, the value of a, a, a boarded environment, the ball doesn't get away, the repetition factor goes through the roof. And the other things that we've done, like in box soccer, you know, it, it's just incredible because the repetition factor determines how good you're going to be from a skill perspective, you know, from, you know, that, that physical, technical ability to strike an actu- accurate shot only comes if you've hit hundreds of thousands of shots. You can't shortcut that type of learning. And, and then there's the, um, the power of being cheeky, impudent, you know, unsettling defenses, challenging the status quo. Y- you can't do this on a big field in, you know, in wide open space. You have to be in tight, fast, competitive environments. You know, so, you know, what we do is everything with a ball, 1v1s, 2v2s, 3v3s, 4v4s, box soccer in these tiny boxes, wall ball on the fields, box fighting in the tiny, tiny boxes. All these things we do is, is how we've structured the environment to be even better than the environments that were created in Belgium, you know, in the, uh, the you know, the, there's courts in Islington, London, you know, Iceland punching above their weight in Iceland because they've got 130 of these courts all over the island for a population of 330,000 people. So, you know, these things are not just us with a theory. These things have been proven around the world, you know, either accidentally or on purpose, you know, and at this point in time, it's time that we recognized you know, as a society in the USA, we need more small fields. We need to put this one-on-one bats in a cave environment, you know, this incredible competitive cauldron into the environment that makes the most of the time that we have available. And if we don't do that, we're stupid, you know, because we've now got the knowledge and all we need to do is invest our time and our money in building out this type of facility and our kids' development will take off. We'll be on a rocket ship all over the country. And it'll never happen in the States if we don't do it because street soccer is gone. There's too many cars. It's too dangerous. You know, so those small-sided games in the streets just don't happen anymore. We have to do this as a planned focus, you know, a, as a campaign. If we're going to, hopefully during my lifetime, the USA is going to win a World Cup. And, and maybe England can win another World Cup. <laughs> but it's not going to happen unless we institute... I bet on the USA. <laughs> unless we institute you know, this type of environment and this type of competitive cauldron approach to coaching. I mean, this, like you talked about all the repetition and what it does for technique, but the repetition and what it does for competitive culture and fire is just the same. And when the ball's not escaping, right, then it makes everything faster and it gives you more reps in terms of getting knocked down and getting back up. And that's such an important piece of that competitive culture development. Um, the, uh, the, the, the last thing I, I want to make sure that gets mentioned, and we'll be mentioning this more as we, as we continue to record, or we're going to continue to record at a faster clip than the 
last couple of months. But um, uh, the convention, the United Soccer Coaches Convention, is here in Kansas City this year. Um, and since that's where we live, we've uh, uh, we're excited to have a pretty big footprint there. Um, specifically, we've partnered with them, and we have discounted registration available. So if you're listening to this podcast, um, you just need to reach out to me, Andrew, at thesoccerbox.org, and I can connect you into a discounted uh, registration uh, for your pass for the entire convention. As well, I'll include an invitation onto two different activities for you. One will be on Wednesday of the convention. We are hosting an all-day summit at the convention where it'll be just for Legends coaches, uh, both locally and throughout the United States, and all of our friends of Legends coaches, friends of Coaching Inside the Box podcast, um, to come in and we're going to be doing a variety of different presentations um, and activities that help build um, uh, knowledge and, and, and awareness on what it takes to be a coach within this environment that encourages kids to be brave, creative leaders, creative being a giant piece of that um, uh, in terms of soccer players. But then as well, we'd love to personally, Andy, Philippe, I would like to meet you, speak with you, answer questions that you might have, but we'd even more so love to actually take you to our facilities and give you a personal tour of what we've got going um, uh, here in Kansas City for training players. Um, So, I mean, anytime that week during the convention, we're eager to to share. And then um, we are going to be doing two presentations, one field session that will be built around 1v1s and 2v2s, and then also a lecture session that will be built around this competitive cauldron co- topic that we covered today. With that said, Andy, Philippe, yeah. do you have anything you want to add? Uh, yeah, I've got one last thing, and this is really, really important, which is why I saved this for last. Okay. And I'm being serious. Okay, because usually that's what you lead in when you're going to take a piss Yeah, I know. Me, well, that's yeah. why I said I'm being serious. <laughs> <laughs> we have an incredibly dangerous culture which is taking over our society for kids. We have the most lethargic, lazy, uh, you know, uh, have to be spoon fed entertainment, uh, destructive culture in the history of humanity, you know, which is wasting, and this is pure fact. I mean, it's wasting hours a day of our kids' time, the time they spend on their phones, you know, watching reels of. You know, people balancing 10, 15, 20 balls on their nose or whatever it is. You know, it's just, it's a rabbit hole that we don't want our kids to go down. And and so what we have to do is we have to get them involved in something like this. And this is by far the best in the world of sports, you know, thing to be involved in. Because, you know, it's it's such a, a massively positive environment in every single way. And, you know, it's not going to happen. Kids don't play in the streets anymore. You know, it's, you know that, that stuff is gone. By the time they reach age eight, they're on their phones and the kids are not playing in the streets anymore. You know, so, you know, we're, we're building a, you know, a, a terrible legacy to, the, you know, to humanity if we don't get our kids involved in something that's going to keep them physically fit, vibrant, make them competitive, you know, and, you know, set them up for success in life as opposed to something that's going to spoon feed them entertainment and set them up to be no-nothings, do-nothings, where everything has to be given to them, handed to them, you know, and we have absolutely got to make sure that we're preparing our kids for the toughest moments in life. That's the key. 
And this is what the competitive cauldron does. It compares our kids for sweating an hour and a half of, you know, of dog-eat-dog, one-on-one battles, you know, where you're taking everything, your skill, your, your intelligence, you know, your, your decision-making capacity, you know, your physiology, everything's taken to the ragged edge, the edge of chaos or beyond, you know, and, you know, and, and your body and your mind and everything about you has to adjust whilst you're retaining your sportsmanship. You know, under pressure, and you know, if we don't do this, we're crazy, because the wolf is not only at the door; the wolf is already in the bedrooms of our kids, and the wolf is eating them alive, as we speak. Well said. I hope before I'm your age, I can give a speech that impassioned and that serious and that intense that is listened to and, and appreciated by the kids that, that, that listen to that every time you're at the middle of a halftime talk. I'm serious. Yeah, I, I, you know, there's nothing more important to me than the future of humanity and the kids are the key. We can't let them continue to go down the road that they're traveling down. Agreed, 100%. With that said, it's wow. good. that was a good episode. And uh, can't wait to do it again next week. Take Thanks, care. guys. Bye. Thanks, guys.